And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you have ever had an experience in one day that basically changed your life forever? There's several, uh, a few folks in the congregation that I thought of that I know has, has had something happen to them, and it happened in a moment, and it changed their life, either for good or for bad. Uh, you didn't know when you got up that morning that by nightfall, your life would be very different. Debbie and I had, had something happen to us. You know, we lost our second child. When I, when I got home from the hospital about 7 a.m., I'd been up there all night long. Uh, I, I was upstairs. I had just laid down for about 10 minutes. And my sister, Pat, who was with us, she said, David, um, Debbie's, Debbie's calling. And so I got on the phone, and all she said was, something is wrong with Aaron Michael. He's in, he's in ICU. He's in Nick ICU. He's two days old. Well, he, he had already passed. He was on life support. But uh, th this was totally out of the blue, all right? So that's one of those things that, that changes you forever. Um, just a minute ago, I saw Sandy sitting in the back, and she's got a big old cast from here down. So I asked John, I said, was it an accident or surgery? He goes, no, first the accident and then, then surgery. You know, it may not change your life forever, Sandy, but it's changing it temporarily, isn't it, for sure? We've got somebody else uh, associated with our congregation who I got a text from this morning. Y'all know Jim and Kathy Asbell. One of their great-grandchildren, Simon, um, don't know exactly what's going on, uh, but he's in ICU and is not expected to make it. They, they don't expect him to live at all. And so she was just asking for prayer for the family. Now, I don't even know how old Simon is. Does anybody... I don't think I've ever met Simon, but it's one of their great-grandchildren. That's one of those events that's going to change their life forever. Now, it doesn't have to be bad, does it? What about if you met your best friend, right? Or, or met somebody who would turn out to be your best friend for life. Maybe it was your spouse. How many of you, ever, of you I've heard this multiple times so that I know that it happens. Your wife walks in and you tell your friend, I'm going to marry that girl, right? Anybody have that in here? I've heard that testimony multiple times. Well, that's one of those where something good happened and literally it changed your life forever. Well, hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ is just such a watershed experience. Whether a person recognizes it or not. To hear about the unique person of Jesus Christ and what he came to do, it is really a fork in the road. And from that point, you either go down the path toward eternal life or you turn down the other fork towards eternal destruction. You can't hear about Jesus Christ and remain the same. In this passage this morning, he draws a line in the sand. Either you cross that line and receive the salvation that he offers or you stay on your side of the line and you eventually face his judgment. Jesus has just warned the disciples of the need to be ready for his second coming when he will judge every person. Those who have received the most light will receive stricter judgment. Now Jesus shows that his purpose was to cast fire on the earth. We're going to talk about that. And that fire would cause division, sometimes even among family members. So the disciples need to be prepared for conflict. 
And then Luke records Jesus' words to the whole multitude where he really chides them for being able to analyze the weather but ignoring the signs of the times, that the Messiah is in their very midst and they didn't know it. And then he uses an illustration of a person who's going to get dragged into court with a losing lawsuit. And if he's smart, Jesus says he'll quickly settle that lawsuit before he loses everything. Even so, those who are in debt to God would be wise to be reconciled to him now before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, we come as your children this morning uh, seeking a word from you. Uh, Lord, we, we do this uh, every Sunday morning, and I hope that we do it daily as well, uh, God, where we just seek you out to hear from you. You are God. You are our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. Father, everything that we are and have is because of you. And, and Lord, I, I want to come right now on behalf of the Asbel family who is struggling with what appears to be just a tragic loss of one of their great-grandchildren. So, God, we pray strength for that family. We pray that they would be drawn to you through this. We know they're going to be asking hard questions. Father, pray that you put people in their lives that can point them to Jesus. We don't understand it, but, God, we do know that you're in control. So, Lord, we just leave that family in your care and ask your blessings on them. And Father, for us, for us here this morning, help us to see that Jesus really does draw a line in the sand. Uh, and you can't walk on that line. You've got to be on one side or the other. And he's calling us to his side. So Father, help us to see that. Help us to gravitate towards that, as it were, by the wooing of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is coming. It draws a line in the sand that forces us to take sides. Now, this is verses 49 through 53. Now, that little section there, there are three ideas. Uh, first, the purpose of Jesus' coming is there in verse 49. The means by which he would accomplish his purpose is verse 50. And then the consequences of his purpose. That's verses 51 through 53. So first, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to cast a fire on the earth. Jesus plainly states his mission. He came to cast a fire upon the earth. Now, that purpose was not yet fulfilled because he says, how I wish it were already kindled. So it was still future to Jesus at the point that he said this. But the question is, what did Jesus mean by the word fire? Commentators differ, but most of their views overlap in their thrust, even if their specifics differ. Some say that it refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember when the tongues of fire rested on the disciples? Others say that it refers to the preaching of the gospel or God's word through his message. It brings fire. Others think that it refers to persecution and trouble that would accompany the preaching of the gospel through the disciples. We know that's true as well. Others think that it simply refers to judgment or purification. Now, since fire has all of those illusions in Scripture, it seems to me that the context of Luke 12 should be the major factor in determining Jesus' meaning here. Uh, Jesus has been talking about the coming judgment, hasn't he? That's been the thrust of chapter 12. Now, he's going to go on to talk further about judgment. Earlier in, in, in Luke, uh, John the Baptist warned the people about the wrath to come, saying that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the 
fire. John predicted the Messiah, he would baptize believers with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But he warned that the Messiah would burn up the chaff with unquenchable, you know what the chaff is? When you do the wheat, you know, the, the, the husk, the kernel, the good stuff stays and the chaff is very light and the wind blows it off. And if it doesn't, if it makes it a pile, that's what you burn, the chaff, it's the junk. So John tells the people that the Messiah would burn up the chaff, chaff with unquenchable fire. So I contend that the predominant theme is judgment. It's true, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but his ministry necessarily also resulted in the judgment of those who rejected him. William Barclay says, in Jewish thought, fire is almost always the symbol of judgment. However much we may wish to eliminate the element of judgment from the message of Jesus, it remains stubbornly and un unalterably there, end quote. Now, to encounter fire is by nature a catastrophic, life-changing event. You have to deal with it or it will consume you. Well, Jesus says that his coming is a fire. You can ignore it and you will perish or you can get on the right side of it, and it will purify the dross out of your life. But the one thing that you cannot do is be neutral towards it. Jesus draws a line that really forces us to take sides. He's done this before, right? He's already said, if you're, if you're, if you're not for me, you're against me. Well, Jesus goes on to show, second, that the means of casting that fire that he's talking about is the cross. Now, almost all commentators agree that when Jesus speaks of this baptism that he has to undergo, he's referring to the cross. This is where he would be immersed under the flood of God's wrath against sin. Now, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus came to this earth for the purpose of going to the cross to redeem sinners. Yet, as being fully human, the thought of the cross deeply distressed him. Do you remember the night before? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's actually sweating drops of blood. It's what we would call hyper-anxiety, okay? The agony of the cross for Jesus was not only the physical suffering, which was going to be intense. <laughs> the agony of the cross was the reality of the sinless one becoming the sin-bearer. The sinless one becoming the sin-bearer. You remember what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21? But he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sinless one, to be sin, sin bearer, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call it the divine exchange. We give him our sin and he bears the penalty. In exchange, he gives us his righteousness to stand before God Almighty. It's crazy. The penalty for our sin is death. God could not simply ignore the penalty or he would sacrifice his perfect justice and holiness. He just can't, you can't, you know, sweep sin under the rug. But to inflict the penalty on everyone, death, well, that would violate his great love, his mercy. Now, through the cross, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 3. Let me use a little illustration. Suppose that you're driving 100 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour school zone, and you get caught. Uh, you're clearly guilty. 
they, they take you before the judge and he says, this is a serious offense. You could have killed someone. Okay, the penalty is a $10,000 fine or a year in jail. And guess what? You don't have the money. So you're pretty much going to jail. But let's assume that the judge was your father and that he loved you. You're not estranged. He actually loves you. <laughs> if he simply dropped the charges, now he would be an unjust judge. After all, you committed a serious offense and he has to uphold the law. How can your father, the judge, be both loving and just? Just meaning to do what's right. The answer is, he could write out a check for you of $10,000 and give it to you and offer it to you, and that would pay your fine. If you accept the check, the law would be upheld, your penalty would be paid, and you would go free, although at great expense to the Father. Now, let me ask you this. Do you deserve to go free? No, you're guilty of sin. You committed the crime. Is there anything in you that merits your Father's kind treatment? Perhaps, perhaps you've been a great kid your whole life, and this is your first offense. If your father is acting on any merit on your part, then this analogy breaks down totally. Because God did not send his son to die for us because we were pretty good people. Even the best of us, from a human perspective, were sinful rebels um, from God's holy perspective. In sending Jesus to die for our sins, God was acting totally out of his mercy and not at all because of our merit. We didn't contribute anything to this equation. Now, to go back to the illustration, what should the young man do? Well, he can say, I don't need your gift. I'll pay for it myself. Well, he doesn't have the money, so he's going to go to jail. Or he can say, okay, I'll accept your offer, but I'll pay you back. That might be a good thing to do, but let's assume, let's uh, just assume for a second that the penalty was not $10,000, but $10 trillion. You're never going to be able to pay that back. There is a third option, and it's the proper one. It's for the child to say, I don't deserve your kindness, but I accept it. Thank you. Now, at that point, the law is upheld, and so is the father's love. The young man goes free because of the father's undeserved favor. That's what God did for us on the cross of Jesus. He paid the penalty that we deserve. If we accept his gift of eternal life, we go free at his expense. God's justice of seeing what is right, it's done. His justice and his mercy both shine forth. Now, you would think that every person would be quick to embrace the cross of Christ because of what it does for us. Yet the Bible shows that while many do receive Christ and find mercy, many others reject God's offer simply because it offends their pride. They don't want to admit that they are sinners deserving God's wrath. They don't want to admit that they can do nothing to atone for their own sin. So the cross becomes a stumbling block for them. And it leads to division between them and those who accept God's mercy. So that's the consequence of the fire is division, even among family members. Jesus states that he didn't come to grant peace on earth, but rather division. In Matthew, he says a little differently. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. 
And from here on out, it stays kind of the same. Now, the prevailing Jew Jewish idea of the time was that the Messiah would defeat Israel's enemies and usher in an age of peace. Do you remember what the angels said uh, on the night of his birth? Peace on earth. And, and of course, Jesus himself often ex extended peace to individuals. My youngest son, every time I call him, you know, what he, you know how he answers it? Shalom. What shalom mean? It means peace. It means peace. Jesus offered peace many times to many ind individuals. But here Jesus clarifies matters so that the disciples are not surprised by the growing opposition. And it's going to get worse. Now God's peace is extended only to those who respond favorably to his offer of forgiveness in Christ. Those who refuse God's offer of peace remain the enemies of God. Those who are not of Jesus are against him. Now, the offer of the gospel necessarily divides people into two opposing camps. Okay, there's that line in the sand. You either are or you aren't. There's no straddling the fence. There's no riding this line. We may think we can do that, but I promise you, Scripture says you cannot. You either are or you aren't. There is no neutral ground. Now, Jesus uses as an illustration, or uses an illustration, to show that the division caused by the gospel, they go deep, even to the separation of close family members. Um, I don't think they would mind me sharing this. I was going to talk to them, but Craig and Maureen are just prime examples of this. They love the Lord. They live for the Lord. They come from a big family. Nobody else in the family follows Christ. It is a source of friction. Now, Craig, he is quite capable of, capable of coming there and beating him on the head with the Bible. He knows God's Word, but he doesn't do that. He tries to share Jesus lovingly with them, what have you, and they just all kind of mm, smile, you know. But in that regards, it's an offense. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, the fact that Jesus doesn't apologize for this, for this division among families, that shows his exalted position. Because he is the eternal Son of God, we have to follow him, even if it leads to family division, because he is so much more worthy of our allegiance than even the closest of earthly ties. Now, of course, we should always strive for harmonious relationships in the family, and we should never do anything personally offensive to cause a rift. We should love and honor family members. We should be kind and gracious, even if other family members are offensive towards us. But if family members are offended by the gospel we believe, then so be it. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. We must be prepared to bear such hostility and to stand graciously but firmly in the gospel. If we proclaim a message that everybody loves, guess what? We can be sure that we are not proclaiming the gospel. The gospel confronts sinners with their rebellious hearts before God. And the fact is, many sinners take offense at that. The gospel humbles human pride. It plainly de declares that no amount of human goodness 
can reconcile us to God. Now, you know that's the difference between religion and Christianity, right? Religion is all, is, religion understands, yes, we're separated to God. Religion is about what we can do to get back to God. And there's a zillion different things that we try ourselves to be reconciled with God. Christianity, on the other hand, is what, about what God has done for us. It's not about what we do for God, because we can't do anything to recommend ourselves to God. We are sinners, first and foremost. Paul considered himself the chiefest of sinners. But Christianity says, no, we depend on what God has already done for us. We're talking about the completed work of Christ on the cross. Okay, that's where, that's where we find our standing. Well, the gospel hits even the most moral people with their own rottenness before the holy God and their own helplessness in saving themselves from His righteous judgment. If they receive judgment from God, they're only receiving what they deserve. Now, as in Jesus' day, it's the religious people who take pride in their own righteousness who are the most offended by the gospel. It's those who devise a system of human works mixed in with God's grace who take offense at the cross. It becomes a stumbling block for them. Charles Spurgeon was accused of being divisive because he pulled out of the Baptist Union. The Baptist Union had started tolerating liberals who denied fundamental, fundamental biblical truth. And, and, and Spurgeon countered, where there can be no real spiritual communion, there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. You hear that? Do you catch it? Fellowship with known and vital error, he's talking about gospel error here, is participation in sin. Our Savior clearly taught that if we proclaim and hold to the true gospel, we have to be prepared for division, even amongst our family members. J.C. Ryle points out, it's not the gospel which is to blame for such divisions, but the corrupt heart of man. The gospel is doing what it's supposed to do, but it's the corrupt heart of man that distorts it. So we've got to stand with Jesus, our Lord, even when it results in such painful divisions. Now Luke goes on to cite Jesus' words to the multitude, and where he chides them for being able to discern the weather, but not the times. The Messiah was in their very midst, and they were missing him. Well, then he gives an illustration showing that if we are quick to settle an unfavorable lawsuit against us, we'd better be quick to settle with God before we come before his bar of judgment. So the second major point, we'd be, be, we had better be quick to get on Jesus' side. He draw, draws a line, and <laughs> we better be quick to get on him. Now, the link between the previous few verses and the, the passage we're covering now is, is that of the coming of the judgment and the crisis of decision that Jesus' message brings. This, fall, this section falls into just two shorter sections here. First, if we analyze the weather, weather and order our lives by it, we should analyze the, time, analyze the times and, our, and live our lives accordingly. Now, in Israel, if a cloud came from the west, it was coming off the Mediterranean, and, and that meant it was bringing rain. But if the wind was blowing from the south, it was coming from the Sinai Desert. What did that mean? Ooh, it's going to be a scorcher. Right? And then Jesus calls them hypocrites um, because they 
fail to discern the significance of Jesus' presence in their midst. One commentator explains, on account of their unbelief and spiritual blindness, they do not see the cloud of grace and blessings which appears with him to all who believe in him, nor do they observe the glowing heat of the judgment which he brings for those who are disobedient. The point is, we hear a weather forecast and we plan our day accordingly, don't we? I meant to bring an umbrella up here and I forgot. I wasn't going to open it, but I was just going to show you. If we know it's going to be raining, we take an umbrella with us wherever we go. Right? In the winter, we have coats. In the summer, we have shorts because it's hot here. Right? We know how to discern the weather. If we hear that the Son of God has come, bringing salvation to all who believe, but judgment to all who ignore the message, shouldn't we respond by immediately embracing Him? The second section, short section here, underscores the need to get on Jesus' side quickly before it's too late. I mean, if we're quick to settle an unfavorable case against us in civil matters, we should be even more quick to settle God's case against us before it is too late. And there does, a, there does come a point when it's too late. Jesus begins with a rhetorical question, and then he illustrates his point. He asks the question, why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Now, he's not implying that unbelievers can, of their own free will and intelligence, decide to follow him. Just two chapters earlier, Jesus taught that no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So Jesus is not contradicting himself here. Salvation depends on God's sovereign will, not on man's darkened human will or intelligence. What Jesus means here is you don't have to blindly follow the Pharisees on spiritual matters. They were the religious ones in Israel. He's urging them to consider his claims for themselves. And then he uses an illustration. The assumption is that your opponent has a really good case against you so that if it reaches the judge, uh, you're going to get thrown into prison and you're never going to get out. And Jesus' point is simple. If you know that someone has a case against you, settle up before it's too late. Now, from the context, we know that Jesus wants us to apply this spiritually. God has a case against every sinner. We owe him for the debt of our sin. Jesus, his death on the cross is the only acceptable settlement. If we discern the times, we would know that today, now is the day of salvation. God is offering to settle in full his claim with any sinner who simply will trust in his son, Jesus Christ. But if we do not settle, there will be no escape on the day of judgment. We'll never get out of hell because our debt is infinite. Why? Because it was, uh, it was, we sinned against an infinitely holy God. Now, the person who discerns uh, the true situation is going to be quick to get on Jesus' side. I have an idea that if the whole world could be exposed to hell for just about three seconds, that uh, pretty much everybody would turn to Jesus so he wouldn't have to face that. But that's not going to happen. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it's so good, I'm going to do it again. 
During a training session for soldiers who are about to make their first parachute jump, the sergeant explained how to open the reserve chute if the main chute didn't open. Yeah, that'd be good to know, right? A private, nervous, a private nervously raised his hand and asked, Sergeant, if my chute, my main chute doesn't open, how long do I have to pull my reserve? That's a good question. Well, he gives a very good response. He looked directly into the young private's eyes and he replied, replied earnestly, the rest of your life, soldier, the rest of your life. If you haven't trusted in Christ as your only hope for forgiveness on the day of judgment, you're like that soldier plunging towards earth. You've pulled the main parachute. You've tried all kinds of things in life. Nothing is working. Either you accept Jesus as your sin bearer and you are reconciled to God as a result, or you're going to come into the court of justice and pay your own debt, which is eternity in hell. Now, how long do you have to get on Jesus' side? The answer is the rest of your life. Here's the problem. We don't know when that is. We simply don't know. Uh, Miss Cheryl Farrell may live to be 100 years old. She's our oldest member. She's 97. She may live to be 100. Uh, Simon, Jim and Kathy's great-grandson, he's probably not going to make it through the day. We just don't know how long we have. Do you really want to take that chance on, oh, I can do this later? For you young folks out here, uh, you know, I would say 25 and under, you have what's called the Superman syndrome. You think you're invincible. You think you're going to live another 60, 70 years. It ain't necessarily so. If you've got business to do with God, you need to do it today. Let's pray. Father, we come thanking you for these hard words that we've looked at this morning that they really do draw that line in the sand and we have to decide are we going to be with Christ or against him there is no in between the consequence of that decision is monumental father following you means that we have our sins forgiven it means that we are uh, redeemed we are no longer under any judgment Father, it means that we are adopted into your family. We give you praise for that. That is your doing. And then on the other side, Lord, if we ignore this message, if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't act on it, Lord, the time may never come again. The only thing left is an eternity separated from you in hell. So God... Give us clarity of thought. Speak to us by your Spirit. Do your work. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is very simple. You've heard me say this 50 or 100 times over the past 13 years. Sin is only paid for in two ways. One is either Jesus on the cross. Or two, by you in eternity in hell for your own sins. Those are the only two options. And Paul says that we're all sinners, meaning we all have sin in our lives that has separated us from God. Now, if you're in Christ, praise God. That's all taken care of. That's all good. All right? You need to praise God for, for Him doing that. But if you're not, those are the only two ways that sin can be paid for. It's by Jesus on the cross or by you 
in hell for eternity. Which sounds better to you? Today is a day of salvation. It's God is speaking. This is a very evangelistic type sermon, right? For those who are, who are believers who have been walking for, with God for an awful long time, you need to be thanking Him for this salvation that was wrought through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. But if you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. You come forward, talk to me. We'll go to Scripture, and we, I'll show you what it means to be a sinner. Maybe you don't have a good definition of that yet. It won't take long to show you that. We're all sinners. But then I'll, and then I'll also show you that because of the love of God, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for your sin, that you might be saved. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.